Hey everybody, welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name is Basil. And this is Gons. Welcome to episode number 085. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so this is an awesome, awesome episode. Awesome, awesome dude. Awesome, awesome subject. Awesome, awesome, awesome. What wasn't awesome, awesome was um, some technical issues we were having. Hey there, Gonzo. Yeah, we were getting kicked off, or at least my my recorder. I use Avid Pro Tools to track everything. Pro Tools kept crashing, basically, and it stopped recording every few seconds. It, we did good for a while, and then it yeah. would kick in again. So basically, we're just here you know, at the beginning to say sound quality may be a little shady throughout the episode, so we apologize. Yes, but it's been worse. It has been worse. It's been worse, so it's so don't be too scared. Don't turn it off right now. Yeah, no, it's it's fine. We just um, you know, there there was just so many times when, you know, our guest was in a groove and things just dropped I out and, and and I had to How embarrassing. I know. And most of the time though, it was Basil in his groove and you know, things got cut off. Yeah, but that's not important. I'm always in a groove. <laughs> 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 so true and there was a lot of weird stuff with this one just in terms of technical stuff but you mm-hmm. know what all is good because here it is okay there we go let's go we'll remind you as the day gets closer so you can stock up on snacks and beverages but a comet is coming a big and brilliant comet it could potentially be 15 times brighter than the moon in 1940, a Chilean astronomer by the name of Carlos Muñoz Ferrada first began talking about an object he called Hercobolus, or what we know today as Planet X, or Nibiru. But he also talked about not one, but two objects. I ended up, all of a sudden, I started having to study astronomy and the science of it and get into the history of Nibiru Is this really uh, something that now may be coming back around? If Planet X exists, and I believe that it does, and if you make the assumption that it caused certain events or had certain effects on planet Earth and while it was in the neighborhood of the solar system, I believe that it was here during the time of the Great Flood. I think it might have contributed, in fact, to the Great Flood, which I think occurred at the end of the last ice age. This started with a press release from NASA that they're still looking for Planet X because of perturbations in the outer planet, particularly with Pluto. And so therefore they figure that it must still be out there. But that's a joke because anyone, and I mean anyone, any one of your listeners can take a digital camera tomorrow and take a picture of the sun. Don't look at the sun, just point the camera and shoot the picture, and then look at the sun and you will see this glowing caterpillar on the side of the sun from the 3 o'clock to the 5 o'clock position, and that is the tail of Planet X. Perhaps the most enigmatic and debated objects that may or may not be soaring through the cosmos on a collision course with Earth is the celestial body known to some as Nibiru, the 12th planet, Nemesis, or simply Planet X. 
On this episode, we will explore the possibility that the Bible we hold so near and dear may have been telling us about the occasional visit from this large planetary body, which may have been the tool used by God for the creation of the earth and perhaps in the near future, its judgment. But to take on the task, we have some much-needed help. Our guest tonight has master's degrees in biblical and ancient Near East studies from Wheaton College Graduate School, and he is the publisher of MysteriousWorld.com, which is an online journal dedicated to travel history and ancient mysteries of the world. He is also the author of Planet X, The Sign of the Son of Man and the End of the Age, and The Riddle of the Sphinx, The Astronomical Layout of the Giza Necropolis and the Mysterious Hall of Records. We would like to welcome Doug Elwell to Canary Cry Radio. What's up, Doug? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. There he is. How you doing, buddy? Good to have you on the show. Doing awesome. Good. Well, you have some very mysterious-sounding literature that you've uh, published and authored here. How long have you been in this field of study? Um, it depends on what you mean. Uh, independently, I've actually started doing research into the Book of Revelation formally since I was about 12 years old. At what point I decided I was going to find out the, the secret of this. I was kind of a cutting-edge kind of person who questions modern translations of the Bible and also our presuppositions about certain things, about the creation, about the end times, where the role of uh, ancient Near Eastern history and how it parallels the Bible. A lot of people don't understand that there's a lot of parallels with ancient Near Eastern history. Uh-huh. Uh, in the cultural context, they ignore that, and so they miss out a lot of the deeper understanding and richer meaning of a lot of these texts, uh, particularly the, uh, the creation, which if you don't understand the context in which uh, the Bible was written, you're going to fall short of, well short of understanding what's actually trying right. to be explained. Yeah, well, very cool. It sounds like you're going to fit around here just fine. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, how did you become a Christian? And, um, you know, how did your uh, career in authorship begin? I became a Christian when I was about uh, four or five years old. My parents are very conservative uh, Christians. We, I grew up actually in a sort of a fundamentalist Bible church uh, situation. So I had a very conservative background, very conservative theologically. theologically. And even though I, I have uh, the, uh, I believe in an ancient earth, an ancient universe, I'm actually, will be considered quite conservative, theologically speaking. It's, there's only a couple of different points I diverge on, which are the age of the universe and uh, certain things which uh, have to do with science and technology. Uh, my, my interests, uh, my background uh, in theological studies, uh, I've been studying the Bible regularly since I was a kid, but I didn't have formal training until I, uh, I was going to get a, a master's degree in marketing communications from Wheaton College, and I also got an additional master's in Old Testament Biblical Studies, which included a significant po- component of ancient Near Eastern studies, uh, specifically Egypt and the Bible, and also the Hittites and the Persians, and, and some other independent study, Akkadian Cuneiform, I ordered a class on that. Um, I, the major reason I did that about that was when I was in college, I decided I wanted to, uh, before I went on to grad school to get a master's degree, I decided uh, based on, you know, the the, uh, the belief at the time that Jesus is about to return, we're going to be raptured away at any moment. I decided that it would be interesting to find out uh, what Jesus was talking about in Matthew twenty four thirty when he said, you'll be preceded by something called the sign of the Son of Man in the end of the age. 
I said, okay, what is this sign? Is it uh, uh, some kind of a star, some kind of a supernatural appearance, physical, supernatural, spiritual, something else? So I began looking into literature, and it, and it occurred to me, and I don't know why, that this might be the same object as the Star of Bethlehem, or a similar kind of event as the Star of Bethlehem, which preceded its first coming. I'm not sure why, but I felt that that was kind of a, a given, even though most people don't necessarily think that's the case. In fact, most people just ignore that passage, which I find amazing, because if you're trying to look for the sign of his second coming, obviously the sign he mentions himself is the one you're going to be looking for first. So I made that my most important goal, to try to understand uh, what was going on with the end times and what actual signs would precede his second coming. And in my search, I diverged into a literature regarding the Star of Bethlehem, what it was uh, in terms of maybe, was it a, a conjunction of planets, a supernova or a comet or some other kind of supernatural manifestation, which, which really the, there's three primary physical explanations, which is um, conjunction of planets, uh, supernova or comet, and there's also the fallback as the uh, supernatural occurrence, which is could of course happen at any time. But I felt it was probably a physical um, object because it seemed to be the treated one as uh, as such in the book of uh, Matthew chapter 2. It was described as uh, rising in the east and it was a star. Uh, I think it was the word is astron, which could refer to either star or planet. And it appeared to move uh, relative to the background stars because they were following it. So that probably made it either a planet or a comet. So that kind of negated the, the supernova or bright star uh, possibility. And the fact that it, the, uh, the Magi would have taken probably at least a month to get from Persia, and the, the Magi came from Persia, on foot it would probably be at least a month to get to uh, Israel or Palestine. I determined that it was probably that, it was probably not a comet, which are only really visible for a couple of weeks at most. And typically comets are uh, uh, harbingers of wickedness and, and disaster and not good things, so that would have been totally inappropriate. And I also looked into uh, the conjunction theory. The conjunctions they mentioned, I think most uh, most often are a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in Leo or something. And the problem is, uh, there was a conjunction of uh, Jupiter and Saturn sometime in the past decade. It actually happens every few hundred years. And I looked at that, and I actually saw the conjunction, and they really only passed near each other and only for a couple of days. After that, that diverged significantly, and so that so-called glorious conflagration I've been told about as a kid in, in the Adler Planetarium was actually just kind of a, a curiosity. It wasn't even particularly bright. So I, I decided there was probably something else, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And at the very end of my search, I was about to give up, I came across the book by Zechariah Sitchin called The Twelfth Planet. <laughs> so I, I diverged from the main literature and kind of come across the fringe stuff and started broadening my search, and I came across this. Um, and he talked about a planet that had existed in, in, in ancient times and came and went out in and out of our solar system, which he believed was uh, Planet X that had been searched for by astronomers for, by the time that was written in 1975 or 76, I think it was, had been searched right. for for about 100 years. And so I decided that this might be the answer. And since then, I believe I've been uh, in further research into actual mainstream astronomy. This is most likely the answer. So what is a little bit more of that history of that uh, planet that people were looking for? I know there's a little bit of Sumerian literature that might in involve that, but why was that even a, a subject of study? 
uh, uh, Sumerian literature or Zechariah Sitchin? Yeah, a little bit of both. Um, okay. You know, you you said you talked about uh, finding Zachariah Sitchin's book, mm-hmm. um, and you know, some people are familiar with Zachariah's work, but it, you know, there's some questionable yep. things about that. I want to clarify that I'm not at all a Sitchinite. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I say uh, <laughs> Sitchinite, I'm not a Sitchinite at all. Right. Um, but I thought I found his his ideas intriguing. Now, it's important to remember because uh, the person is not a good scholar doesn't mean they're completely wrong about everything. Mm-hmm. When you spread out your search, like uh, me, right? yeah, right. You're, <laughs> I'm you're a terrible once, scholar. You, you I'm should not think the of the worst person in the world. You should think of it in terms of uh, you're you're panning for gold. Some veins are richer than others, mm-hmm. and when you broaden your search out of the, the more richer stuff, which is the primary Christian literature and scientific literature. You have to go to this tertiary sources, which are more speculative. And this is part of what I do with the mysterious world and other things. I, I start going out of the main area and looking at these uh, tertiary sources and see if there's anything out there that could shed additional light on these primary and secondary sources. And Titian was a classic example because, you know, initially I found a skept- I was skeptical about it because he made some pretty wild, pretty wild theories about the, the uh, Anunnaki, the you know, mining for gold, and you know, you know making mankind a mind for them, that sort of thing. I, I wasn't sure if I agree with that at all, and I couldn't, I didn't know. But, you know. It didn't sound particularly biblical, maybe vaguely so, because the Anunnaki correspond pretty well with the Nephilim, or with the fallen angels right. uh, and the Nephilim. But um, I was mainly concerned about the Planet X theory, because that was primary what I was looking for. And so I, I uh, took that as, as a lead to, to the primary references of Planet X, I checked it out, basically, and said, is there a planet X out there? Uh, are astronomers actually looking for it, like he claims they are? And I found a wealth of literature on the subject, which comprised chapter three of my book. There's uh, dozens and dozens of very good references to planet X in uh, the uh, the mainstream astron- astronomical uh, journals, uh, mainstream economical textbooks, actually. I took a class in astronomy, which talked about the search for planet X uh, um, as part of its uh, criteria, part of the course offering. And I realized that uh, it actually had been a legitimate course of study. It had been looked for since the 1880s uh, by, I think it was Percival Lowell, who first started looking for it when he was looking for planets beyond uh, Neptune. Now, the initially, when Percival Lowell, I think it was Flagstaff Observatory, or no, it's the, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's an observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona. I forget the name of the observatory. They actually were looking for um, planets beyond Neptune as early as the 1880s. And, uh, by uh, careful searching of the heavens using a blink comparator. That is, they, they compare two different uh, images taking a few seconds apart to see if something moves in between. And they eventually found uh, uh, planet, they found planet Pluto using that method uh, a few decades later. But they were unable to find planet X. So the, uh, even though they'd used the term planet X to, to describe the planet that is you know unknown, uh, has not been found yet. Um, when they found Pluto, they, they realized it was too small, so they just called that Pluto. And the, the, search, the search for Planet X went on. They kind of found it for a while because there was no way to really check because the, the limits of the limitations of the technology had been met by that time. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the, there's found later that the observational errors in the orbit of uh, Neptune, which looks like it had been modified by another gravitational pull of another object still further out. Right. It had been based on uh, incorrect uh, observations in, I think it was the 18th century. But so the planet X theory almost died there, but 
when the Voyager probe was passed outside, uh, past uh, uh, to the outer uh, outer solar system, they found Nep the planets Uranus and Neptune are, are a total mess. They were they were topsy turvy. Uh, I think it was uh, Uranus. Either Uranus or Neptune was actually almost on its side. Their yeah. their their moons were going in different directions, prograde retrograde. One of the moons of Neptune, I think, uh, near it, has a highly elliptical orbit. And they also found that the uh, planet uh, Pluto uh, had a, had a an orbital path that intersected occasionally that of uh, planet Neptune. And that and the fact that uh, Pluto is nearly identical in size and composition to um, Neptune's other major moon, Triton, led them to believe that Pluto was actually once a satellite of Neptune. This is why they said Pluto's no longer a planet, because it was originally just a satellite of Neptune that had been torn out of its orbit by some unknown force. Right. That's why Pluto was downgraded to uh, not being a planet. That was the real reason. Right. Uh, because and do they have a timeline on that, or is this that just a general theory? Uh, as to when it happened? or was Yeah. It's, it's sometime in the very ancient past of, uh, of uh, the solar system's history. Mm. Okay. But they, did, they calculated based upon what would have taken for that to happen, for it to be ripped out of Neptunian orbit, and also why is uh, the uh, the uh, uh, rotational and magnetic axes of of Neptune so widely off? They form right. like they form like an X. They're like they're yeah. like forty degrees different from each other, which is really weird. Yeah, you know, happen. it's it's interesting, and I I don't mean to interrupt, but it's it's just a little Basil trivia for everybody. When I was in third grade, I did quite a uh, in depth report of Neptune. Oh. And because of the strange facts about Neptune, I actually got a C because my teacher didn't believe some of the strange things about <laughs> Neptune that I had put in the report. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And it's Neptune diverges dramatically from what the uh, standard accretional model says. Yeah. You know, it should have it should have inherited the the characteristics of its parent that is the, the sun. So yep. when the solar nebula formed, it should have been in that plane, uh, uh, orbital plane, it should have had a uh, rotational and uh, a magnetic axis, which are more or less in line with each other and also perpendicular to the plane of the ecliptic, and it was none of these things. Yeah. That that plus the weird moons, that the, the, the apparently Pluto had once been a satellite, and Uranus has similar issues. In fact, Uranus is literally on its side. It's like a 145-degree tilt, so right now uh, Uranus' south pole is pointing almost directly at the sun. Yeah, and it has its own issues too, including a, a ring system which could have only formed after that uh, tilt occurred. So, um, if you look in into the book, the book name of the book, Planet X, the Sign of the Son of Man in the End of the Age, I actually go into detail as to why Uranus and Neptune, all of the different anomalies, uh, all of these things could only have happened if, and as this is how what the scientists themselves deduced based on our analysis of what could have caused this. It required uh, a large planet-sized object, roughly three to five times the mass of Earth, traveling at high velocity at an angle, at a pretty high angle to the ecliptic, uh, as, as a past past Neptune. And this would make sense because this would explain why those two outer planets are self-tilted. Because in order to accommodate uh, with the uh, the uh, different um, uh, angle that the other planet would have come in, they would have kind of would have kind of averaged each other out, and so this new planet would have been brought more in line with the ecliptic. And Uranus and Neptune would have been tilted over to, as they were kind of pulled each other. Right. So um, they, they kind of averaged themselves out. Uranus and Neptune were more massive, so they were tilted less. But this new planet, which they say was really the only way this could have happened, because once you do the, once they did the math, they realized that the only way this could have happened was a 
was a, a planet roughly three to five times the mass of Earth traveling in an angle from uh, up from underneath uh, the solar system coming in that way, that direction. That's the only thing that could have done this. So right. this is why I'm so um, c- I'm convinced about its existence, is it has to exist. So I wanted to first, basically after reading Sitchin, I wanted to make sure it was just based on real science, not just kind of some guy speculating on whatever. And so I convinced myself, based on this analysis, that Planet X had to exist because the science and the math proved it had to exist. The outer planets, they could not be in this condition unless a, a planet roughly three to five times the mass of Earth had come through the solar system at an angle and caused these effects on the outer planets. So there, some one of the uh, debunkings that I've heard about Planet X um, from the skeptics is that if a planetary-sized object passes through, you know, the the solar system every, you know, twice every thirty six hundred years or so, that's based on the the Sitchin uh, work. Then basically, the idea is that planets will be all all over the place, and none of the uh, the millions of objects that have their quote unquote well defined stable orbits will be in place. You know, there's a pseudo astronomy podcast quote here that says. Almost all of the millions of objects within it are well-defined, stable orbits that will last for a long time. This is almost impossible if, twice every 3,600 years, once coming in, once going out, a planet-sized object passes either through it or close by. The gravitational disturbance caused by a planet-sized object would significantly disrupt the asteroid belt, causing collisions among its members and for it to be scattered over time. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is that that's partially true, that there are disturbances that we can read. Right. Um, well, that's the proof. The disturbances are the proof. You should not have these disturbances. What's, if right. you have a well-ordered system that forms without disruption from the beginning, then you shouldn't have these disturbances. So the disturbances themselves are the proof. So they, they, you know, they, they ruin their own argument by the fact that they note this. The fact that there are asteroids to begin with means there must have been a disruption. Yeah. Obviously, it's a remnant of a previous planet that had once existed there. Yeah, I would like to to interject a little bit, just to throw it out there for any listeners who may not have done the research. the The asteroid belt in our solar system is actually, when you look at, I don't know, charts or graphs or pictures or anywhere on the internet, the asteroid belt uh, in our solar system it looks really crowded. It looks really, really crowded. And when you compare that to things like, uh, I don't know, Star Wars, where they're flying through an asteroid belt and uh, it's, everybody's taking hairpin turns and TIE fighters are exploding because they are somehow less agile than the giant Millennium Falcon, you get the wrong idea about the asteroid belt in our solar system, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you were to fly a spaceship through our asteroid belt you almost, I don't know, by a huge percentage, have a very little chance of actually seeing an asteroid. They're very, very, very far apart. Yeah, I think they're millions of uh, miles apart, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of miles apart. You could uh, easily fly through the asteroid belt and not see a single one. They're right. really, really spread out. So uh, over time, this, um, it's, it's, yeah, like you said, it's not like the uh, Star Wars at all. Right. And then on top of that, we have a couple of planets which seem like, uh, the, I don't know, the black sheep of the family. They just don't fit in. So there has to be something. And uh, it seems like a rogue planet-sized object 
is as good of a theory as any. What do you think, Ewell? Well, it has to be because uh, there's nothing else that could do it. It's not like, uh, you know, this is going to happen by random that Uranus is, is going to turn on its side. There has to be a causative agent to have for that to happen. For example, the planet Jupiter has a large ring system, and it also has a significant axial tilt. The axial tilt, it's, once again, it should not have an axial tilt. It should be perpendicular to the plane of the ecliptic. And Jupiter also has a small axial tilt of about three degrees. And if you look at the axial tilt uh, relative to the mass of each of the planets, uh, for example, Uranus, uh, Saturn, and Jupiter, they become progressively smaller the larger the mass of the planet, indicating that if a planet had passed by them and altered their uh, axial tilt, it would be smaller for each mass, the more mass of the planet is. So Jupiter would have the, the least axial tilt, Saturn would be moderate, and uh, Uranus would be severe. And that's exactly what we see. So... Jupiter might also have been affected by this planet, as also Saturn, and all the way in into Earth itself, which has a significant axial tilt too. I think it's 23 and a half degrees. But it was interesting, most interesting to this fact, is that the two two inner planets, uh, Mercury and Venus, exhibit all the characteristics of planets as they should have formed out of the solar nebula. They are fresh and clean as the day they were born. They have no moons. They have no axial tilt, uh, little or no rotation rate. In fact, uh, a Venus actually rotates backwards very slowly. It's like three times or four times a year compared to Earth, which rotates 365 times per orbit. And that's exactly how they should be if they formed out of the solar nebula with random planetesimals banging into each other. Um, without, they should have little or no rotation rate or active though, which is exactly what they are. So you have uh, planets uh, Mercury and Venus, which are exactly they should be um, based on the solar you know nebular hypothesis. But from Earth on outwards, everything appears to have been affected by something else to some extent. And so that's more evidence. All these anomalies, specifically, particularly the asteroid belt, indicate Earth that, on outwards, huh? Yeah, Earth from Earth on outwards, every single wow. planet indicates intrusive activity interaction with one or more planets that have entered into our solar system. Highly suspicious. Now, what about, this is kind of on the side, but I'm just curious about it. You know, Saturn has that hexagon in the North mm -hmm. Pole. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think that is? Well, that's just nature. Um, the overtime, the, uh, the natural magnetic fields and uh, interactions with the other planets, uh, gravitational fields, this creates... Patterns which show up in nature. Uh, we, we see, uh, I think these are platonic solids. Uh, and, and mathematics, they, we can prove these on a, on a small scale. Uh, Saturn is proof of these uh, these patterns in nature on a large scale. It's not magic. It's just the way things are in the universe. So there's no there's no so alien moon base? It's not reptilians, no. Gons. No, it's, it's nature. It's nature. That's the way nature operates. That's the way math works, the way it works, because that's the way things are. Cool. I like that. <laughs> I like that so much. It's really quite simple. <laughs> I wanted to get into some of the Sumerian literature and, you know, your book, Planet X, really goes into a lot of that. And mm -hmm. it was really helpful for me to read through some of that because I kind of struggled with getting a grasp of like which mythologies to read. Because, you know, with Sumer, there's so many different ones. And you know, I'm kind of confused about, you know, which ones are Akkadian, which ones are Babylonian. It's it just, it's a little over my head. Mm -hmm. I know the Enuma Elish is one that people always reference. The Atrahasis epic mm -hmm. is another one. 
So based on a lot of the Sumerian literature that's out there, one of the things that I know as Christians we always face is that, you know, there's obviously a parallel between a lot of these Sumerian writings and the biblical accounts of creation. How do we deal with that in terms of people suggesting that, oh, you know, Moses, if, if Moses was the one that wrote wrote down Genesis, he mm-hmm. just copied it from the Sumerian literature. You know, that's the right. kind of, uh, you know, they, he, he was trying to promote monotheism as, as a new form of religion or whatever. That sort of attack on Christianity, how do you deal with the, the fact that the Sumerian literature came before? Well, the, uh, the, when the Sumerian literature was uncovered, uh, Babylonian creation, I think it was actually discovered in, I think it was a library of Ashurbanipal, or I think it was in Syria or that area, uh, during the 18th century, latter half of the 18th century. And, of course, people who want the, the Bible to not be true, who decided in their minds it's not true, automatically assume, well, since this is similar to the Bible, therefore the Bible must have ripped this off, end of story, it's, it's a myth. That's what the German liberal scholars would say, the uh, Gerhard von Rad, R.K. Harrison, not, R. K. not Harrison, mostly, mostly Gerhard von Rad, whom I had to study in grad school as a liberal critical scholar. Um, these are German scholars that really grew out of the uh, 19th century and went about, made it their life's history, uh, mission to debunk the Bible and, and mythologize the whole thing. And my theory is that uh, they both came from a common root tradition that was Hebrew in character. Now, not many people understand this, but the Babylonians are actually a Semitic people, and they were related to the Hebrews uh, going way back. They diverged probably around the time of Abraham when Sumer was destroyed by fire from heaven. And uh, Abraham was actually called out of Ur the Chaldees, which was the major city of Sumer, and told to go to the land of Canaan, where he would, you know, the promised land and so forth. This this happened immediately after, uh, immediately uh Shortly before, Sumer was destroyed by fire from heaven, which is talked about in your own literature, and I, I talk about it in the chapter 6 of the book, how that uh, destruction of Sumer and Ur parallels neatly the uh, book of Job and the destruction of Job's family by fire from heaven as well. In fact, I think they were actually the same or a very similar event. But uh, the, um, they, I believe they have a common root tradition, but because the Hebrews had a monotheistic tradition, and the um, the Babylonians were, were polytheistic. They took the same source material and expressed it in different ways. The Hebrews used literature like Job, which I believe is the Hebrew version of the uh, Babyl- uh, ancient creation epic, and the Babylonians created a story, like a, a mythology, which used many different deities. So the Hebrew version which had one deity, which was a dialogue between man and God, and the Babylonian version of the same material was a battle between the various deities, who were actually deities that were worshipped during the times of the Sumerians. Those are Sumerian deities. You know, um, Anshar, Kishar, all the rest of them. They're all, except for Marduk, they're all Sumerian. Um, and there's a political component to it and a religious one, because the insertion of Marduk into that ancient creation epic, which was Sumerian, and preceded the Babylonians by maybe thousands of years, uh, indicated a political... Uh, uh, and religious uh, conquest of the Sumerian gods by the Babylonian deity Marduk. So by inserting him into their story, they're saying they've overthrown Enlil, replaced by Marduk, and said, since we defeated you militarily, our god was stronger than you, and Marduk is now the head of the pantheon and the, the hero of the ancient creation epic. So um, what happened with the Hebrew version is that it was written down as in form of the book of Job, which passed down unchanged for 
many, many generations to the current day. Whereas the uh, Babylonian and Sumerian version changed hands occasionally. Whoever ruled that region, their god became the hero of the epic. And so over time, it kind of changed. Uh, the, uh, the original Sumerian one was a little bit different. The Babylonian creation epic we have right now, and Elisha is the most comprehensive and best developed one we have, so we use that as a reference, right. but there were, there were other versions. Now, if I may, for just a second, how does the book of Job get mixed in with uh, translations of literature involved with uh, a creation tale? As far as I know, Job isn't traditionally taken as a creation story. Mm-hmm. My theory is, is that it, uh, it, cre- it took the same root creation material and expressed it in a different way. For example, like I said, the Babylonians created like a, a myth, an epic, a, a narrative drama. Whereas the Hebrews took it, wrote it down as a sort of a, uh, a, dis- a discussion between God and man. It was uh, more of it was it was kind of a drama, but it didn't involve any deity except for God. So they, they did it as a discussion. If you look at the Book of Job, there are numerous references to the dragon and the creation. Um, you know, Job nine being a classic example of uh, Job mentioning. Uh, how uh, the dragon defeated, you know, God defeated the dragon and created the earth, heaven and earth from its body. Let me look that up real quick. And it's also references to Leviathan, the dragon, in, uh, in, in Job 41 right. and so forth. So the, the references, there's descriptions peppered throughout the book of Job between a dragon being defeated by God and the earth being created, not explicitly stated from its body, but clearly referenced to the creation. Led me to believe this was actually a uh, the Hebrew version Right. Okay, yeah. Well, there's a, in Epic. the last part of Job where God responds. Um, I know that uh, just because I spent a lot of time in Job, there's been a, a <laughs> most of the book is spent um, just a bunch of a bunch of dudes arguing over um, uh, you know about God's nature. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I find it interesting, and I I only stay on the topic because I've I've never actually heard as, uh, of Job as a creation epic, mm-hmm. um, so that's very interesting. Now, when God does come in at the end, now what sort of relations does the Book of Job have with these other creation epics? Maybe that'll help me see it. Yeah, well, the, uh, the the way Job the way it is, it's, it's think of it in terms of this is. Information, not so much an epic, but a way of encoding information about the creation in a way that is that can be carried out from generation to generation. In fact, uh, the Book of Job was not actually just a a book; it was actually like a dramatic play that was sung. It was like an opera. Now, if you if you recall, if you look at the original Hebrew text, it says at the beginning, "God sang and said, and Satan sang and said." They were actually singing this beginning part. And they think the implication was is the whole thing was sung. Just like, for example, uh, the Greeks would later on pass on their, their, their epics in the form of poems which were sung. Because if you have a song, it's easier to remember, and this has been proven, it's easier to remember text if you can sing them as part of the song. So this is a way of encoding this information and remembering this creation material, which is quite substantial in the book of Job. In fact, the more you look into it, the more uh, the large amount of creation material there is in the book of Job. Um, this is the way they, they maintained this over time so that it would not be forgotten. Uh, people would sing the song and remember the lyrics, and in that way, the information would be maintained for many generations, which, and when it was eventually written down, it managed to last, you know, maybe um, 
thousand years or more before it was finally written down. And that's maybe the only reason we have most of this information. Can you walk us through some of the passages where you see the creation happening in Job, uh, especially uh, since it was a fascinating chapter when I read it as well, and I think the audience and Basil will enjoy it too. Okay. Uh, specifically somewhere in Job 28, I believe, or maybe 26? Yeah, I, I was looking at um, specific stuff here. Job 26 is probably the, one of the best ones. Now, I'll, I'll reiterate, go back to the original theory of uh, uh, laid out in an emulation, the Planet X theory, uh, related to that. And I, I did that in the book so you could see what the parallel was. Now, the, the theory is, is that Planet X entered into our solar system, and it uh, struck Earth with one of its satellites, actually two of them. One was a, was a rocky satellite which shattered Earth, uh, in, the form, in the process of creating the moon and the asteroid belt and the comets, actually. And there's a second satellite, which was gaseous in nature, which pushed Earth into a, another orbit close to the sun. Uh, and, and this is, and this, so basically Planet X divides the Earth and forms the asteroid belt. And I believe Job 26 talks about this piece when it says, Hell is naked before him and destruction has no covering. Now what he says here, basically what he's saying here is, is, the, the mantle and the core of the earth were exposed by some sort of destruction, destructive act. Hell is naked before, meaning literally the mantle was ripped off, which is what happened when the moon was created and would happen if a large uh, object uh, struck the earth. The, the interior of the earth will be exposed. So uh, hell is naked before, I mean, destruction has no covering means the mantle was ripped away from part of the earth and you could see it into the interior. And then it says in the next verse, Job 26, 7, he stretches out the north over the empty place and hangs the earth about nothing. He's talking about uh, moving Earth's orbit and and basically moving into the location, hanging it upon nothing. Really meaning uh, this is what he, he is he is uh, establishing an orbit for it. He, um, let's see. And the most obvious piece here, uh, Job twenty six twelve. Uh, he divided the sea with his power, and by his understanding, he smited through the proud or Rahab, which is the name of the dragon. So basically what he's saying here is he divided Rahab into two pieces, just as described in Emilish, where uh, Marduk was described as dividing the dragon Tiamat into two pieces. And then it says in verse 13, By a spirit he hath garnished the heavens, his hand hath formed the crooked serpents. And in Emilish, the tail of Tiamat was twisted into a circle in the heavens called the Rakia, or that literally means hammered bracelet. So if, if Rahab Tiamat, which was considered to be a planet, Tiamat was symbolic of the Earth, and uh, and uh, Marduk was a star, which were a planet which came close to the Earth, and actually says this in the Nehemiah, that Marduk is actually a star. Uh, it says that the Tiamat's tail was, was twisted into a, into a hammered bracelet into heaven, and the word is rakis. Uh, that's the Akkadian equivalent of rakia, which literally means something that's hammered out uh, and stretched out, which is uh, translated in the Bible as the firmament. So in context, and with the actual fact, what they're talking about here not is not that the, ha the heavens are made of some hammered out bronze plates. What it means is, is heaven, the second heaven, is made of, of crushed rocks that were spread out and are orbiting in the heavens right now, which we now know as the asteroid belt, not a hammered plate. Uh, it's actually talking about the creation of the asteroid belt here. Mm. So you have here the uh, Lish talking about the dragon being shattered and spread out. You have 
and in Job 26, talking about the dragon being shattered and spread out also. And we know for a fact that uh, there are asteroids out there that were shattered and spread out sometime in the past. The clear parallel is this must be a description of the asteroid belt. Uh, it is fascinating. That's a fascinating way to look at it. Very, very cool. So when we go back to Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2, without being totally outspoken about it, you're sort of touting the gap theory. But it seems like rather than ignoring or dismissing the Sumerian text as you know evil or bad or something like that, what you're showing is that the scriptures actually align with it pretty well. The Bible suddenly becomes uh, perfectly in line with the creation epics of its time. It becomes in context with the ancient world, which means it can be dated way, way back, as opposed to being a modern invention created by the Jews in exile, which is what the liberals want us to think. So it, by, by doing this, you contextualize the Bible as being an ancient document that made that fit in perfectly with its time, because this is the way people thought. And now, uh, probably the best uh, analysis is Psalm 74. Uh, I'll read this out to you real quick. This is the best description of the dragon and the creation. And it says, For God is my king of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength. Thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters. Thou breakest the heads of the Leviathan in pieces, and gavest him to be meted to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Thou didst cleave the fountain and the flood. Thou driedst up mighty rivers. The day is thine, the night is also, also thine. Thou hast prepared the light and the sun. Thou hast set all the borders of the earth. Thou hast made summer and winter. So this is a perfect parallel with Enuma Elish, which described the exact thing. In Enuma Elish, Marduk you know, divides a dragon into heaven and earth, uh, divides its waters. Um, it created the, the day and the night immediately afterwards and sets all the borders of the earth, including the summer and winter. This is a description of uh, the summer and winter is based on the rotation of the earth. Without mm. rotation, We don't have summer and winter, so he's saying you're setting the rotation. Prior to this, the Earth may not have had a rotation, just like uh, Mercury and Venus. So it had to be given momentum. And by striking it with this large object, it not only dug out a large portion, which became the Moon, it also started its spinning. Because without the spinning act, you do not get the seasons. Right. And also, you need to have an angular tilt to have seasons. Actually, the, the actual tilt is also for the seasons, but you also have to have spinning to, to distribute the... Uh, the uh, the sun's warmth, but this is also a description of the axial tilt being created because the summer and winter are created by an axial tilt, which normally a planet would not have unless it's knocked over by some other physical object. And so he's saying the day is thine, the night is also thine. In other words, you created a rotation, so the earth is rotating with a day and a night now. And also, you know, he has prepared the light and the sun, which means the sun, the way the sun shines on the earth is has been prepared so that Earth can sustain life. And also he says you've created summer and winter, you, you know, the axial tilt. You broke up, divided Earth so that uh, there were pieces of Earth left in the heavens which still circle to this day in the form of the asteroids and comets. It's all there. And this is just one example of the many passages when properly translated give a precise description of how the solar system actually is if you can accept the fact that it's based on the concept of a model between, of a conflict, a symbolic conflict between God and a dragon. So this is interesting because what you're suggesting is that a lot of these passages are celestial events with planets and comets, you know, smashing into each other and stuff like that. But 
Am I right to assume that you're not necessarily neglecting the supernatural side of this whole thing? Well, this is all part of his plan. Yeah, he's all he's in control of everything at all times. There's no there's no non-supernatural component. I think the tendency is towards forgive me if you find this insulting, but magical thinking in the sense that, you know, God used a magic wand or he snapped his fingers, everything just suddenly appeared as is, no process. Now why would God create something in such a chaotic state though? It makes little sense. Obviously, things are going on. Now, we can see solar systems in formation in our galaxy. I mean, they're everywhere. Uh, we're going to have to accept, and maybe this is difficult for you or others, that the Earth, in my opinion, is an ancient place. And it has laws and processes that were put in place by God himself to achieve his goal at the time and place he wants it to be achieved. Right, right. That's really interesting, and that does bring up a big, um, <clears throat> a big. I, I don't know. I'd say a big separation in thought process uh, mm-hmm. within the Christian community, and I would say our listeners are pretty well divided um, on on either side, which mm-hmm. probably is a bigger spread than you'd expect. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's actually interesting to hear somebody come at it from that point of view. Now, I have a question about something there. I, okay. I don't know if you've studied Joseph P. Farrell's work at all. Um, but I've read his books, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he has a book called The Cosmic War, and he gets into the Enuma Elish and other ancient texts there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And his interpretation is that a lot of these characters were ancient gods. You know, he subscribes to the ancient astronaut theory and sort of lays out that there was a cosmic level event or catastrophe, yeah, yeah. but he attributes those events to an actual race of beings in conflict with each other. And one of the items that he mentions is the Tablets of Destinies, and he lays out a whole narrative drama with, you know, Marduk stealing from Enlil and fighting Tiamat and the whole thing. So how do you assess some of Joseph P. Farrell's interpretations of the so-called gods being actual entities, and I guess part two to that question is, do you think there was a pre-Adamic race? Uh, Pre-Adamic race, I'm not sure about. I I think maybe that Satan, and this is part of my book in the Giants, that Satan was trying to preempt God's creation by creating his own version of mankind prior to God's, and that explains why we have these kind of bizarre artifacts in the fossil record prior to the appearance of modern man. And these things have to be explained because, you know, they obviously exist. So my theory is that the fallen angels are trying to preempt God's plan by creating things um, to rule the earth uh, to so to allow, to keep God's creation, the mammalian-style life, uh, from, from taking over. But that's just speculation. But regarding, uh, regarding Pharaoh, um, I would find a lot of his interpretation to be comical. Uh, I, I think he's an interesting guy and a very intelligent guy. But the, regarding um, the, some of the stuff he talks about, you know, you know, Death Star deployed, you know, things, it's a little, it gets a little silly. And I think he just has a little fun with it. I don't know if he takes his stuff seriously because he's a very bright guy. But some of the stuff he writes is just kind of ludicrous, in my opinion. Um, regarding it's regarding you know, races that existed before mankind, probably, probably they were talking about the activities of demons in, in the heavenly places that pre-existed mankind, certainly. Uh, and their attempts to maybe have a war with God in, in heaven before prior even the creation of mankind. There's a possibility that they've been war with each other for a very, very long time, and the human experience is only a very small sliver of the total uh, time that uh, there has been intelligent life or some kind of intelligence 
in the universe. Uh, I also I've considered the possibility that mankind is really kind of a a battleground because they fought each other to a stalemate in heaven, and the only way to to determine who was going to end up ruling the universe was to have kind of a contest on Earth as to whose mankind was better, whose mankind was uh, more more effective. And for the Homo sapiens or the giant races they created, which I call the Homo artificialis, the artificially manufactured version of mankind. Ooh, that's a fun name. It's I actually use that in my uh, series of articles on the giants, mm. and I use a series of uh, uh, artificial types of human called Homo artificialis. Nephili for the Nephilim, Homo artificialis refi for the Rephaim, Homo artificialis refi zuzim or Anakim for the giant subclasses. It's all there at mysteriousworld.com. You can see it in the giants, uh, first of the giants articles. You should really read that if you haven't already. I love a uh, good scientific categorization. Yeah. It's, uh, it makes it a little easier to understand because there are a lot of giant clans. And really, if these people existed, they need to be classified. So that was my. Right, my suggestion, but yeah, it's um, as far as a lot of that uh, fringy. What I do, it's not really all that fringy. There's some super fringy stuff out there, which is really bizarre. Farrell is a classic example. Wait, you but, haven't heard of Obama teleporting to Mars? <laughs> I have heard the wormicorn. I haven't heard of the wormicorn. I've heard of Obama teleporting to Mars. Though. Okay, you <laughs> should study up on the wormicorn. Wormicorn. It's a new one. It's a new one. <laughs> I think I'll. I think I'll probably not do that, but maybe, <laughs> maybe if I have a moment to amuse myself. Don't bother. Don't you Google Wormicorn, it takes you to our website. So it does. Okay. <laughs> but but as far as far as uh, that goes in general, I try to avoid it because it's just not biblical. It's entirely speculative, and most of it's just nonsense. Right, sure, right. sure. Yeah, and, uh, and it's interesting that First Job thirty-eight, when it talks about some of the things God seems to have laid out like you know who laid the cornerstone he's mm -hmm. talking to job when the morning stars sang together and the sons of god mm -hmm. shouted for joy and all that stuff and to me the interpretation that i've always understood it to be is that god is sort of saying were you there during the creation of the earth and were you there when the morning stars and sons of god shouted for joy etc and so this is seemingly prior to the creation of man mm -hmm. so whether it be in the spiritual sense or perhaps partially physical it seems at the very least that there were intelligent beings of some sort prior to the creation of man actually your reference to the cornerstone is a good one because i talked about this in my interpretation of uh reinterpretation of job 38 and my theory is that the cornerstone actually refers to the stone that was used to strike earth when he laid the foundation with the cornerstone, meaning he literally a stone that God shot at earth, which resulted in the creation of earth as we know it. So he's talking about, and it's also, if you read in English, which you really should do, it says the, the, uh, the, the other planets, the other gods, were singing for joy when Tiamat was defeated. And say, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. This is the Hebrew parallel when they say these are not gods, they're just you know, lesser angels. They're not deities. But this is the same thing. Uh, God is defeating the dragon by shooting a stone into her heart or an arrow, depending. It's different metaphors are used. But in the background, these divine beings are shouting for joy because Tiamat was this terrible tyrant who had oppressed them. So, the dragon. So, it's exactly the same in terms, you know, symbolically speaking, in a general sense. Um, so, that the, 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 the idea of using a huge stone, which he uses at the beginning in Genesis 1-1, which Genesis 1-1 literally means to cut earth. It does not mean to create earth. It says to cut earth. And, and the, the idea is 
that Earth was cut into two pieces by uh, ostensibly uh, a, a stone, which God used to divide Earth into heaven and Earth. Like I said before, um, heaven, you know, when God, you know, created heaven and Earth, he cut Earth. He didn't create it. It actually says he cut it. So what he did is he divided a previous, what that literally means is a pre-existing object was divided into two pieces. And one was used to create earth and the other to create heaven. Now we know that the, there are three heavens. Uh, the atmosphere, uh, second and third heaven, and the third heavens where God lives. So the second heaven must be somewhere in between. My theory is that since uh, God, earth was divided into two pieces and it was talked about a, 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 a rakia, which literally means something kind of smashed and hammered out and beat into small pieces and spread out. That is, in fact, a perfect description of the asteroid belt. So what they say in Genesis 1-1 is, in the beginning, God created the Earth in an asteroid belt from a previously existing object. Hmm, that's so interesting. That's what, it, that's, what it literally, that's what it literally says. Right, right. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting way to... Uh... Uh, I, I, not a new one. I wouldn't say a new one, but it, it is a um, an interesting way to uh, interpret the Bible or, or to read an interpretation of the Bible, and and one that's I hope uh, some people would take uh, a look at. Now, when we look even further back, and I know we tried to refer to this a little bit earlier, but we have the Sumerian texts, and we have um, I believe a couple more. Uh, sort of texts that relate to this sort of thing, um, it, it has kind of led to a recent insurgence of sort of a new age look at Planet X, or as it's referred to as Nibiru, uh, or something like that. Uh, what do you have to say on that topic? Well, I was actually listening to an interview on uh, another station, uh, a station that has heard from coast to coast, that uh, the guy on there with a the New Age perspective on Planet X, and he was talking about Planet X and Planet Y, and he talked about ancient aliens and things of that nature. Uh, they tend to they tend to kind of wrap their own special sauce around it. I I, I like to, I try to strip that away as much as possible and go down to the real real science and say, you know, there's real science behind this, and it describes perfectly the way the universe with the solar system must have been created. In that context, you can very easily interpret the Bible as saying these things. In fact, that makes a lot more sense. And some of the passages in Job are just kind of ludicrous, the way they're, they're translated now. They're just kind of bizarre. But if you translate them correctly, they make perfect sense. And they described in a fair amount of detail the, the creation of the Earth and of the moon and of the comets and how, and, and how the seas were formed because these, the oceans were formed... Uh, it is now believed that they were formed by one or more large asteroids striking the Earth and releasing uh, the water from Earth's mantle. Because the majority of the water on Earth is not on the surface, nor was it originally on the surface. It was actually in uh, the mantle in the form of uh, hydrous minerals such as serpentine and talc, which make up a large proportion of the Earth's mantle. And when uh, subjected to pressure... Uh, this uh, water would have been released in a large, large doses, and shot up into space. Some of which would have remained in space, but a lot, most of it would have fell back to Earth to form the oceans. And this would have required a large, one or more large impactors in order to achieve this. Otherwise, we wouldn't have any oceans because it would require a large impact event to release the waters from from the uh, uh, from um, from the mantle. And this might also imply that uh, one or more large Asteroids hit the Earth uh, around the time of the Great Flood, 
because if that happened, a huge amount of water would have jetted out of the fountains of the deep into the atmosphere and rained down over a period of weeks, causing massive flooding. So if, a, a, say, an asteroid struck the Earth or maybe one struck the ocean and also penetrated deep into the mantle, not only would you have a huge tidal wave covering the water, the uh, contents, you'd also have a massive amount of uh, water jetting out of the uh, the mantle through the crust mm. and precipitating out over a period of weeks, thus explaining the the uh, 40 days and 40 nights of rain. This would have taken a long time to rain out over huge amounts of, of water. And so probably that was the reason um, for the flood is one of our impacts by large asteroids. You know, that that is something new. I will say I've heard a lot of interesting things, and that is something new I have not heard. Um, that uh, explanation for the the flood story mm-hmm. um, that's very fascinating. Wow. It's, it's it's science too. It doesn't require a lot of effort. Just think it through and look at. Uh, now, why do you think I haven't heard that before? I mean, uh, I mean, let's be real, Mister Elwell. Mm-hmm. I've heard a lot of stuff. I believe, <laughs> I believe that that, that uh, unicorn thing. Yeah, I mean, come on, Wormicorn originated here. I mean, okay. we've had a lot of people and a lot of very well science-minded folk. Um, and, you know, uh, along with all of the more uh, mainstream arguments and explanations for the flood story, mm-hmm. why, if this is so scientific, why have I not heard of this before? You know, it's, it could be that God is hiding himself from them. He likes to do that sometimes because he likes to make the fool's he likes to make wise men look foolish and foolish men look wise, so that's why right. he told me instead of others. <laughs> so I was, I was not, not especially intelligent or well well uh, mm-hmm. educated, but you got these guys who are you know pontificating on various topics. They have no idea what they're talking about, right? Uh, and they're often wrong, and they never apologize, right? And so you get some goofball out of nowhere to, to start writing these books, and you you show them your secrets and say, okay, I want you to do this. Now these people are listening. They're too arrogant. They're too proud. They got their own agendas. I'm choosing you to do this. It is you have to do this for me because yeah. you are my servant and do what I say. Okay, that's, now, that's that's the way I felt about it. Now, what kind of response have you found to this this uh, theory? Are, are there other people on board with you, or um, I'm just you know I I mean it it makes a lot of sense to me. However, I, I haven't heard about it before, so that you know that's the only reason I'm asking questions. Forgive me. That's fine. Um, so it's been, it's been it, surprisingly positive because, uh, right. and also uh, there was another person, I forget his name, uh, Tex Mars actually wrote a similar book years ago okay. uh, using Planet X as a reference for a possible disaster. But it was, it looks like it just never went anywhere because it may have been too radical for the time. But as part of my research, I found that out. Right. So, uh, but this is the first time of this kind of in your face approach to Planet X has ever been done, as far as I know. And the original book title was going to be The Sign of the Son of Man and, and, and the End of the Age. But in order to make it clear to the person who was buying the book, to be fair to them, to see what they're getting into, I felt <laughs> it was appropriate to say Planet X, The Sign of the Son of Man and the End of the Age, so you know what you're buying. If you, have, if you buy a book with the, with the words Planet X on the front cover, you have only yourself to blame if you buy it. <laughs> if you feel it's not appropriate. So that, that, that screened out some people. But I think 95% of people who have responded have been positive. And the rest of them just don't care. So, frankly, I'd rather they hated it if they read it. Um, people who don't care bother me because 
they never they they won't know what's happening when it happens because it will happen. In my opinion, this is one of the core components of the end times. Right, which is a great segue because I wanted to get into the future references and the return of Planet X in terms of how it might impact us and how biblical prophecy seems to have some sort of reference to Planet X as a catalyst for a lot of things that, you know, we've labeled simply as supernatural or just things that God does prior to his return or his judgment. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I haven't seen Planet X as part of the context of the end time scenario uh, at least quite like the way your book puts it, and specifically, you know, with examples like Revelation chapter 4 and stuff like that. But what if we uh, start in Matthew 24, maybe? Is that a place where you can launch into how Planet X might be related to biblical eschatology? Yes, that's fine. Matthew 24 is the core of my uh, my theory, because the, the word, the title of the book comes from there. And uh, this, I talk about... Uh, he talks about it here, a series of events which correspond pretty much with the, the, the seals and the trumpets. And then he says it, it um, Matthew 24, 30, he says, or tw- let's start at 29. In fact, 28 to 32, because in the book uh, where it says, for wherever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. That's actually a reference to the book of Job which is a, a creation passage, so that's interesting, too. Generally speaking, the creation and the end times will be linked because of the presence of Planet X. As it was in the beginning, so will be in the end. Um, but I'll read you this passage because it's critical. This is Matthew 24, 29-30. He says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect in the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So, basically what they're saying is, immediately after the tribulation of those days, which I believe is referring to the seventh trumpet, um, which after which is the Great Tribulation, the really bad stuff when the bulls are poured out, and which is the wrath of God un, undiluted. Um, Planet X will appear, and stuff will really start happening. I mean, it'll, it'll, it'll begin its attack, attack run. Um, then as a result, the sun will be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars will, shall fall from heaven. What that means is the stars falling from heaven. Obviously, the stars will not fall from heaven, or the earth will be totally incinerated. It's not even physically possible. So what he's talking about here is there's massive meteor showers. Massive. Huge, causing huge amounts of damage. Meteors, asteroids, things are getting totally blown away now. Cities are being shattered. And as a result, the sun is darkened and the moon shall not give her light because of the massive amount of dust that's thrown in the atmosphere as a result of these asteroid strikes. And it says the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. This literally means, the powers of the heaven literally means the planets. Because the powers of the heavens are the gods in, in the ancient uh, Near Eastern mindset. These are the the gods were the planets, and the powers of the heaven. When you say they're shaken, that literally means that the orbits of the planets themselves will be altered. Now, the only way this could happen is if a planet passed by these these planets, because that's the only way you could alter their orbits or affect them in any way. That or you know magic or you know fiat whatever. Forgive me for using the term magic. It, it, it irritates you because of the magical thinking. It's either 
uh, a rational scientific explanation or it's magical. And people fall into a, you know, a, it was a miracle kind of concept, which is, which is fine. But in this context, we're talking about physical events caused by physical objects. And there's, frankly, there's an interface between the physical and the spiritual there too, so it gets a little confusing. But um, for the optical purposes, we'll say that God has created an object to achieve a goal, uh, a physical object, which I believe is planet X. And so, and right after that, when he says the orbits of the uh, orbits of the planets will be changed, massive asteroids will be falling and and, and uh, throwing dust up into heavens so bad that the sun and the moon will be darkened. Then this this sign appears in the heavens, and this sign is not it's not it's not a small thing. The tribes of the earth, the peoples of the earth, are terrified at this thing. Why on earth would they be terrified at the sign? It was just some bright light that's saying, "Here I am," you know. This thing is an imminent threat to the existence of mankind itself. This thing is coming towards Earth, and it's about to totally wipe them out. And then Jesus, in that glorious appearance of this planet, which flames out like a gigantic comet, with huge wings that span probably halfway across the visible, visible heaven from Earth. And this is why Jesus says uh, in later uh, chapter, um, as, he, as lightning goes from the east so it goes to the west, so it shall be the coming of the Son of Man. This is just probably referring to the, uh, the wing-like tail of Planet X, which, at its fullest, will cover a large section of the heavens. Think of a gigantic comet the size of a planet. Can you imagine how big the tail that thing would be? He's talking about a tail that stretches all the way from the east to the west and covers the entire Earth and is so bright that it reflects the sun so that the uh, the uh, the night side of the earth is as bright as the day side. And that's talked about in the other prophets. That's what they're talking about. When this thing comes close, it's going to reflect a huge amount of solar light off of its tail back on the earth, and there'll be no time for the earth to cool overnight. It'll get hot during the day and hot during the night. It'll get hotter and hotter and hotter, and men will curse God because of the heat. That's what they're talking about. That's the only way that could happen. You'd have to have a reflection of the sun off of another object that was bright enough to do so. A large planet with a huge cometary tail would do that very thing. <clears throat> and then he sends out the angels with a trumpet. So they see this thing coming at them, which is just causing massive destruction. It's uh, altered the orbits of the other planets, and it's a, they're thinking it might actually destroy the Earth. This isn't uh, a heavenly apparition of a choir of angels. This is a big deal, and it's a very real, very physical danger, which is about to strike the Earth. That's my interpretation of, of this passage that is as, as actually a description of the near flyby of Planet X, which God will use to judge the Earth as, as a mace is used to shatter a pot, uh, clay pot. Yeah. No, that's very interesting. Now, um, in 2012, I believe, with the whole 2012, uh, you know, panic or, or whatever you want to call it, there was a group of people talking about um, Planet X, uh that was going to come whizzing by and do the job, you know, before Quetzalcoatl could uh, fly down or before the aliens could visit or, you know, I mean, there was a lot of theories as to what was going to happen. But uh, Nibiru was definitely one of them. Can you speak to, I don't know, the culture of Nibiru or Planet X or what was the what was the evidence that they had or what what, what was no, it all about in fact the mayans never talked about planet x or even alluded to it it was just the usual drivel that you know it's just, it's it's largely based on fear-based marketing mm -hmm. 
Uh-huh. But people like this kind of end time stuff. And the more salacious you make it, the more you know, put together the more interesting things you put together, mind calendar and the world, planet X. Right. You know, Nephilim coming down to UFOs, whatever. Right. The uh, it just makes it more interesting. So they just put it all together in a big pot. Yeah. A golden cup of abominations and served it out to people and they bought it. Yeah. The uh the imminent collision with another mysterious secret planet um is a little bit more interesting than just the uh numerical resetting of a ancient calendar. Yeah, and nothing really happened at all, so <laughs> I, I avoided it because it was just another 88 reasons why it'll happen in 1988. Right, it's a right. classic example. I got burned back then, and I said never again. So I didn't, I didn't get part of the 12, 2012 hype. Yeah. I said, you know, no way. And I, I, uh, I uh, so actually, Rob McConnell on the X-Zone, uh, he said, you didn't get part of that, did, did you? You weren't part of that. I was like, no. I was literally the only person who was into Planet X who did not catch on to the 2012 hype. It was funny. Uh, so I, I learned my lesson earlier, and it came in handy later. But yeah, uh, I, I totally get you, um, Nancy Leader, and all those characters out there. I purposely avoided all of that, even though she's very popular. I think she had a prediction in two thousand three or two thousand four, somewhere in there. Uh, Might have been two thousand three or two thousand four, and yeah. nothing happened. And nothing happened. Yeah. And people say, oh, there's look, there's a the planet X next to the sun. You can see it there. It's a solar. It's a lens flare. I was just like, dude, it's a lens floor, let it go. Um, they just keep coming back, and that's why I just I don't talk to them. But it's you just have to be polite. I mean, you know. yeah, yeah. Well, just getting back to the day of the Lord reference you made, yeah. um, the reference that you talked about in Matthew, I mean, it's all over the Bible, the Old Testament, the sun, moon, and star signs. Right. Uh, it's a well known anticipated event in the Bible. And mm-hmm. now, some of the things in the book of Revelation, you know, I don't know where your position is on the rapture. Uh, but I'm not pre-trib, so don't worry about offending me or anything. But Neither am I. Okay, cool. So what do you think in terms of the church? Uh, what do you think we'll go through as far as the Antichrist and everything? I mean, how does the Planet X scenario fit into the whole context of the beast system, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and some of the things we see in, for example, Revelation 13? Uh, the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth uh, correspond nicely to the Earth beast and the sea beast mentioned both in the New Elish and also Book of Job, uh, Leviathan and Behemoth. Uh, these are the earth beasts and the sea beasts that have been around since the beginning. In fact, in the New Elish, they talked about the uh, Tiamat and Kingu. Kingu was the kind of an earth beast that uh, Levi- that Tiamat gave birth to, in order to lead her heavenly army of twelve. So this is this is a uh, and also Behemoth was the original original version of the earth beast. And uh, might show up actually in Revelation 12 is the the Earth, uh, you know, sp- you know, spewing out water. It's uh, it, uh, there's an illusion in uh, the I think it's Job 40 or 39 where Behemoth is discussed that he actually spews out um, the Jordan. So this might be a reference to the Jordan River being, you know, flooding being used to flood the land of Palestine because uh, Behemoth is or is related to possibly. Um, uh, that mountain with the fallen angels came down on the feet of the name of it offhand. Mount Hermon. So you might be or be related to Mount Hermon uh, and to the core of the uh, Mesopotamian uh, myth uh, of uh, Ninurta. Uh, but that's uh, that's something else. But uh, Planet X, in my opinion, actually is clearly alluded to in Revelation, Revelation 1 and 2. It, Jesus says, let's see, let me look this up real quick. That's right. He says at the beginning of chapter one, at the end of chapter one, 
And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter, shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. In the next chapter, the end of the chapter, he talks about a star again. And uh, basically he's saying, um, uh, he says, actually at the, the end of chapter 2, he says, to him it overcometh, uh, chapter 3, he says, to him it overcometh, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, even as I also overcame, and sat down with my father on his throne. So the star seems to be related to this throne, you know, the morning stars. And I don't think he's talking about the planet Venus, I think he's actually talking about planet X, which, by, in which, one, which I think was the star of Bethlehem, which preceded his first coming, and will return again at his second coming. And his throne might refer to planet X itself, which would, and, and if that's true, it would make perfect sense, because talking about a throne that is a, a star that is a throne, or a planet that is a throne. Sure, Revelation 4, the very next chapter says, And look, I behold a throne in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So, the throne that is a star is in heaven, obviously, where else would it be? And he says that, you know, uh, it was like jasper and a sardine stone. The sardine is like red, a red stone. You know, it's a rainbow around the stone, inside like an emerald. And my opinion is that that is actually, that actually the description of the throne is actually very similar to the description of Marduk in Enuma uh, Elish. Uh, specifically, Marduk had a group of seven satellites, or seven winds, and a group of four winds. And in here it says, there are seven lamps of fire burning before, before the throne of God. And there is also four beasts full of eyes before and behind. So there's a group of seven and a group of four, which correspond to an M.A. Lish. Once again, same base material, different interpretation. They're still talk, talking about a group of seven and a group of four. Also, you have a rainbow around the throne. Uh, Marduk was described as having this glorious uh, you know, uh, glow around him. I actually think this was actually a description of a of a Saturn-like ring. Because it's described later on as being like a sea of crystal or glass, which is a good good, good explanation of a ring, or the ring around Saturn, which is actually a sea of floating uh, floating ice. So there's there's a sea of crystal, a sea of glass like under crystal, which is around the throne, it looks like a rainbow. That's a good description of, of a ring system like that of Saturn. So, and then you have the group of four and a group of seven, and you also have that the throne looks like a great red stone. He's describing the throne as a great red stone, which is in heaven. It's like a star. It has a rainbow around it. There's a group of seven things around it, another group of four. And this sounds an awful lot like Planet X. This is a very good description of what someone described Planet X if they were trying to hide it in plain sight. Mm, that's interesting. Well, what about the passages that talk about, you know, being covered with eyes, you know, the wings that are covered with eyes? It's in Ezekiel and other places. What do you think's going on there? Not sure about that, even though the basic, uh, the word eyes, at least in Hebrew, is ayin, which means, basically means an opening, like a hole. Um, it could be they were full of holes for some reason. Uh, they had holes drilled in them for some purpose. Maybe they actually had eyes. I, that one is... That one's a mystery to me still. I, I cannot interpret that one yet. That's gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> right, because it's always been kind of creepy in my mind. Right. You know? That is weird. I think there's I think it actually means something else. Something about having holes in, in them. Some people have, have, have speculated that there's some kind of a craft which uses suction 
to pull in to to pull in air from the the front of the airfoil so there's no drag. Now that that exists. That's I think it's used in airplanes now to reduce or minimize drag by getting rid of by sucking in the uh, air because through tiny air holes that are on the craft. But that's kind of a long shot. But I thought that was interesting. Um, these actually are referring to huge satellites uh, that are made of uh, either rock or possibly uh, gas uh, that were picked up when the planet X passed uh, passed by the outer planets. Mm-hmm. Well. Now, just for clarification's sake, are there any inhabitants on Planet X? And are you suggesting that, and I know you're not, but are you suggesting that Jesus is some kind of alien that, you know, is returning on Planet X since Planet X is his throne? You know, I don't, I don't know. This, this is right. I don't know the answer. I don't think he's definitely not an alien. But um, I think of Planet X as kind of God's throne chariot, something he he's rides to war. It's not something you live in. It's something you ride, uh, and uh, it's um, yeah. It's like it's like a, a war chariot. You take it. You ride it to battle. He's uh, he's 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 using this thing to attack Earth, and it's his uh, heavenly um, throne chariot. And this is alluded to in the Old Testament as the divine throne chariot of God, which circles in heaven. And I talk about this, and I think it's Psalm nineteen, where it literally says that God uh, runs the circuit of heaven. Uh, and nothing is hit from its heat. I think it actually refers to planet X as opposed to the sun, because the sun doesn't actually move in heaven. We are we move around the sun. Uh, so when it says uh, he moves in the circuit of heaven, it's the, the there's a couple of places I can't get into the detail now. It actually says in a couple of places in the Bible that actually God moves in a circle in heaven, and also uh, Isaiah talks about how God comes from a far place from the end of heaven which literally says the word is like a piece of land, a physical place. And he, he returns from the end of heaven on this, on this land, which can only be interpreted as a planet, with weapons of war to make war on uh, basically Earth. Uh, I guess it, you know, it's Isaiah 13 or something. Um, but it's, there are references, and I talk about that in chapter 4, about God riding in a circle in heaven, riding on the clouds, or you know, uh, coming with a heavenly army from a far, a far country. Literally means a country, a physical location on Earth that is in the, at the head of heaven that is coming towards Earth, which once again can only describe a planet by, those, by that definition. So um, I don't think it's where God lives. It would be enormously cold and dark most of the time, a very unpleasant place to live. I do think it is something that he uses to judge the Earth on occasion. Every 2,000 years or so, it'll, it'll fly by. Uh, the last time it came by, it announced the birth of Christ as the star of Bethlehem. Previous to that, it uh, passed through our solar system and was worshipped by the uh, uh, Akkadians as the god Enlil, as the Sumerians as the god Enlil. Enlil. And it shows up in their literature. They actually say god Enlil appeared and hurled down fire from heaven and destroyed Sumer. Um, my interpretation of that, also Abraham, who was born around 2000 BC, his birth was preceded by a star. Uh, in the, uh, I think it's the uh, Testaments of the Patriarchs or something. That's also in the book. And so there's a, there's a reference in the apocryphal literature to a star preceding the birth of Abraham, which was about 2000 BC. So if Planet X, Planet X returns in our time, uh, that would prove that it does, in fact, have a 2000 year orbital period. And finally, uh, there is a reference to the day of the Lord being a thousand years and a thousand years being as one day. Uh, my theory is that that actually describes an orbit of Planet X. Uh, one uh, thousand years for it to go to the outer edge of the solar system, which is the night, and another thousand years to come in towards the inner solar system, which is the day. 
1,000 uh, uh, to perihelion, 1,000 to aphelion, 2,000 years total orbit, orbital time. And as such, altogether, with the description of planet X being out there, astronomers are looking for it as we speak. The the disruptions in our outer solar system, the clear parallels and parallel texts uh, in the ancient Near East, um, and also clear references to some kind of heavenly object in the Bible associated with God and his second coming. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out this is probably something like planet X. That's very interesting. You know, you bring up just your perspective on things is very fascinating to listen to. Um, now, you know, with all this talk of Planet X and uh, outer space-based things, uh, I can't help but try to draw some sort of, um, I don't know, uh, comparison to the UFO or alien deception that is talked about a lot nowadays in the fringe um, community, you know, not in the least here on Canary Cry Radio. <laughs> so, do you have, um, it, is there any connection there where maybe that could be used as a part of the deception, or maybe that's part of the science based uh, alien sort of alien based uh, theory on the end or the new age or what do you think about that? Yeah, like uh, can they use Planet X as sort of an excuse or, or a catalyst for the fallen angels to you know come about and, and come down? It's possible. Um, I think what will happen, what will actually happen is that the fallen angels there will be a battle in heaven and the fallen angels will lose. And they'll come down from heaven to earth, having lost that battle, and planet actually, and the heavenly armies will be right behind them. And so they'll probably say, oh, uh, planet X is a bad place because, you know, it's full of bad people. And I think they've been planning that for a long time, uh, indoctrinating human beings into thinking that planet X is a bad thing. And it's a bad place full of bad people. Not least of which is actually the movie Star Wars. Which... Uh, <laughs> I believe it was actually purposely done in order to propagandize people to believe that the heavenly planet that is approaching is bad. Is the death ruled star. by an evil emperor? Is a death star? A death star ruled by an evil emperor? That was Death Vader is on planet X. Exactly. The emperor is the father, the evil father, and Darth Vader is the evil son. And that and a concept. And there, there was a propaganda piece designed to make us think that this is a war, and those people up there, the empire, they're evil. We have to fight against them. And the whole point of this and the building of the civilization and the Freemasons and all of that is to build up a civilization of a technological level sufficient enough to build weapons of power strong enough to attempt to fight against the second coming against the approach of Planet X itself. Yeah, see, that's interesting because the Planet X piece I hadn't really considered, but in terms of all the technological developments uh, you know, I'm writing my first book right now, and, and it's taken a lot longer than I was hoping for. But the whole thesis is that space weapons and, and all the stuff being built right now is going to be used to fight against the second coming of Christ. Right, right. So, you know, it's really interesting that you bring that up. Rebel scum. <laughs> so the bad guys are the good guys, and the good guys are the bad guys, according to the Star Wars mythology. Yeah, it's the, the Luciferian doctrine. You know, they flip it around. And is it, is it any, any mistake that uh, planet Alderaan is blown away, and they ended up flying through an asteroid belt? The planet Alderaan was, a, was symbolic of the Earth, and it was destroyed, and what was left was an asteroid belt. Get it? 
they talked about that's, that was the Lucas's nod to an MALS. He studied this stuff. He knew all about it. Yeah, it seems like a lot of these Hollywood types have a good grasp on the ancient literature, especially Sumerian stuff. You know, there was a, a recent film. It was called The Guardians of the Galaxy. And mm-hmm. uh, there were several references. But, you know, one that really stuck out to me was one of the planets that they visit was made out of the head of an ancient celestial being Mm -hmm. and it was used as a place for trade and to tap into resources and and stuff like that. So it's definitely, I mean, they definitely are aware of that stuff. Yeah. Earth is, yeah. Earth is thought of as uh, by the ancient Sumerians as the head of Tiamat. So that makes sense. Um, But yeah, it's uh, the, the, the new age, I think they're kind of uncomfortable with it. Partly because um, my book, I think has had an influence on them. In fact, uh, so I heard some influence of my thoughts on the guy who appeared on Coast to Coast. And I'm hearing people say things that I hear, uh, that I say in my uh, I, um, interviews regularly, that some of the statements I make. It's having an effect, and I think that they're, having, uh, they're thinking twice about um, using Planet X as part of their theory, and they're trying to recapture for the New Age side of, the, side of things with the Sitchin and everything, because I'm starting to co-opt the conversation as making it more of a Christian thing which they don't want to do. Like, so you alluded to, you were correct to say that they're, they are using Planet X as part of the New Age gospel. And so you have to be careful when you talk about this to make sure that this is clearly not um, New Age in orientation, even though it can be thought of as that way. And so, yeah, I guess it's buyer beware. I went out of my way to make uh, Planet X, uh, the first chapter, be a very, very conservative theologically. And so that should be, that should make anyone ready to get uh, clear as to what my position is. Yeah, and I think that's what really drew me in because, you know, I received the book as part of a package from Tom Horn. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And at first I was like, well, I don't know about this, but, you know, I read the first chapter and I was hooked. So thank you for uh, writing the book because like so many other things, you know, the biblical answer seems to always make the most sense. But uh, we're about to start wrapping it up here. But if there's one thing that you want your readers and listeners of this episode to walk away with, what would it be? I would say um, you should take seriously the possibility that there is actually another planet in our solar system. If you want a, a basic understanding of the concept of Planet X, I would recommend the book The Hunt for Planet X, uh, which is basically an analysis of the, the uh, search for Planet X since the uh, late, late 1900s all the way to the present. There's, of course, my book, Planet X, The Sign of the Sun, The Man, The End of the Age, which talks about all, all, all sides of the... Uh, of the book from uh, scientific, uh, Christian, uh, Sitchinite, and uh, you know apocalyptic uh, point of view. And beyond that, I would say probably just pick up a uh, straight-up book on uh, astronomy. There's plenty of books about astronomy. The, there are books about Planet X, including books like Planets Beyond, uh, the search for the outer planets in the outer solar system. Lots of good books on the subject which talk about Planet X from a main, mainstream scientific perspective. And also brush up on uh, mainstream cutting-edge uh, research on the comets and on the asteroid belt, and uh, particularly on the giant Tibet theory of the creation of the moon. And once you understand all these things, you'll begin <laughs> to understand uh, where it is I'm coming from and why I'm so confident that this position is the correct one. So basically, if we study space, 
we right. will discover that Planet X is a totally uh, viable, uh, viable thing. Viable, yeah. Yeah, very cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Mm-hmm. Everybody, this was Mr. Doug Elwell. Hey, if you got a website or uh, a place we can look at your materials, let us, uh, what is that? Where can we go? Give us uh, more info. The more, the more popular one, a general interest one, is MysteriousWorld.com. I have a Facebook page for Mysterious World and also for Planet X on uh, Facebook. It's probably the best place to go right now for Planet X. So just type in Planet X on Facebook. It should be the first one on top. It has what's like, uh, the icon for it. looks like a star of Bethlehem over, uh, over the Earth, uh, which is the same pictures used on the cover of the book. Uh, the book can be gotten on Amazon.com. You can also order directly from SurvivorMall.com. That's one that Tom Horn uses as his main uh, sales arm for his publishing house, Defender Publishing. But uh, easiest probably get it on Amazon, even though it's out of stock right now because it's sold out recently. Um, beyond that, uh, if you want to talk, talk, contact me directly, you can email me. You can email me at publisher at mysteriousworld.com. I'll be happy to answer any questions you have about Planet X or giants or any other topic wonderful all right well thank you very much doug i really really appreciate you coming on and sharing your uh, stuff here on the show everybody make sure to go to those links check them out on facebook all that stuff to learn more about planet x doug Atwell, thank you so much for coming on the show buddy i hope we talk with you yeah, soon thanks, doug. all right thank you all right man well there you have it <laughs> there you have it there it is everybody thanks for listening to canary cry radio make sure to check out all of our things uh on the internets um and tune in next time but until you do think outside the cage Until you do. (laughs) Uh, Yes.